The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 35, the party completes their investigation of the convent of the followers of Hanavi, Blind Maiden of Hope. Gyrios lays the head priestess to rest as best he can, and composes a note of condolence and of warning to whomever might next discover the tragedy. So that robbers will not have it, Gyrios also takes a ring that they soon discover is a magical ring of protection that could only be worn by a woman. This episode is a level-up episode for both Gyrios and Umura. The dice were extremely generous, granting almost maximum hit points and ability score increases to both characters. In addition, our two spellcasters received access to new spells. The party resumes their hex crawl, re-entering the Kazmirioth, and in doing so, the third and final leg of their journey to the Arlegwar, where Ursuleth is to be safely delivered. A few days later, they come across a small wooded valley and dare to hope that their dwindling supply of food and water might be replenished. But as they approach, they spot and are spotted by a very dangerous creature. It quickly becomes apparent that the beast is hoping to find a meal as well. It roars at them and charges. The story left off at the start of a randomly generated wandering encounter, a run-in with a grizzly bear. I've already rolled the bear's reaction check off mic, and the results were, ultimately, not favorable. The basic rules specifies that grizzly bears are far more aggressive and likely to attack than their cousins, the black bears, so I rolled that check with a minus two. It took two rolls. The first was a four, after the penalty. A bad roll, but not quite low enough to indicate immediate attack. So I rolled again, this time applying a penalty of minus three. On this roll, I got a five. Adjusted to a two, well, the outcome was clear. This was a predatory bear. It wasn't simply defending its territory. No, it was out hunting for a kill. I also needed to roll and see how far away the party was from the bear when they spotted it. The expert rules say to roll 4d6 and multiply the result by 10. That number is the distance between the two parties, in yards. I rolled a 17, so 170 yards. That's not the worst I could have gotten. The party will have a head start on the grizzly. Unfortunately, the bear has a movement rate that is twice the speed of the dwarves of the party, who move relatively slowly, at just 60 feet per turn. The party has no hope of outrunning it. So all they can do is hope to find some kind of defensible or otherwise advantageous terrain. The expert rules has a chart to determine the chance for evasion too. 
According to this chart, the base chance in this situation is just 35%. The rules say to adjust for speed and terrain, etc, etc. But to keep it simple, I'll just say that the party's good head start will cancel out the Grizzly's speed advantage. So 35% is the number I will use. Boy, that is not very good. Here goes nothing. Rolling percentile dice. And the roll is... Dramatis Personae, Harl Stonecarver. The game of Taiguar, or Mountain King in the common tongue, would have been described by many other races as unnecessarily rough for children, but the dwarves of Merith rather went in for more physical sport and, in fact, encouraged their children in such things. In the lower caverns of Dwarvar, past the mushroom farms and the Kubrick farms and the Branabil farms, young Harl Stonecarver, the ever-smiling and slightly chubby Nitrim Gott, and his younger brother, the patently simple Egrog, could often be found, inventing new competitive games and new ways to earn the scrapes, bruises, and rashes that were the after-play trophies of dwarven youth. No game was complete until one of the children was in tears, and very often, that's how they knew any game was over. Currently, the three of them were playing in the southwest lower cavern. This cavern was favored because it housed a fantastic natural feature of Dwervar, a massive stalagmite that towered 12 feet in the air. It was always wet, and its asymmetrical blobby bumps, curves, and cavities glistened with moisture. It looked as though a giant had poured several wagon loads of pinkish glue into a pile on the cavern floor, and then walked away. The rules of Taguar were simple enough. Get to the top of the stalagmite, and remain there for a slow count of five. There were no other rules. The game took ages to play. The four dwarves scrambled up, slipped and tumbled down, and generally grabbed, wrestled, and pinned each other to the rock. It was rare for the game to end with a victor. As mentioned, most games ended with someone getting their body, and more importantly, their pride hurt badly enough for the rest of the group to forfeit the game. The rest of the day was typically spent brooding and avoiding each other. When there was a clear victor, it was always Nitrum. He was the biggest, strongest, and eldest, easily shoving the other dwarves down the slippery rock with his boot. He would perch at the top like a strange bird and say, There's only room for one at the top of the mountain. Then he would punch the air with his fist five times, counting off in triumph while the others struggled below. And so it was a special day for nine-year-old Harl when he grabbed a hold of the rosy nub that topped the stalagmite and counted five to victory. At the base of the stalagmite, his friends wrestled and traded blows over some imagined slight. Harl did not care how he had won the game, only that he had won it. He felt wonderful. It was the very first time he had ever tasted victory. He remembered looking down at Nitrum, who glared back up at him with a look of pure poison. It was the first time Nitrum had ever been defeated. Chapter 36, Part 1 Day 43, Late Afternoon Party Status Harl, 21 of 21 hit points Eridine, 12 of 12 hit points Girios, 27 of 27 hit points Umura, 18 of 18 hit points Ursuleth, 4 of 4 hit points Umura has memorized Light, Shield and levitate. Kyrios has prayed for 
cure light wounds, and purify food and water. Over there! Harl did not stop running to point. There was no time for that. His face was slick with sweat, and his top knot bobbed madly as he dashed ahead, leading the way to a rocky outcropping. Their good fortune did not come a moment too soon. The grizzly bear was right behind them. They could hear it huffing and grunting as it gained on them. Loose stones fell away as they threw themselves up a steep incline over a huge oblong boulder into the top of the formation. Quick, get behind me. When they were as high as they could go, they turned around and saw unbridled ferocity right at their heels. Harl pushed them all behind him while Eridia freed her bow. They were face to face with the beast by the time she had an arrow drawn back to her ear. But the creature could not easily reach them. It jerked its massive shaggy muzzle and bellowed in frustration. Eridine released, and her arrow flew into the bear's shoulder. The creature did not even flinch, but surged towards them, knocking away bits of rock. Harl swung his axe in warding as Eridine fitted a second arrow to her bow and drew back again. She loosed it, and the missile punctured the bear's chest at near point-blank range. This shot staggered the creature, but it surged back, roaring. Eridine put three more arrows into it before it backed off. A sixth arrow, buried to the feathers in its rump, finally convinced it to retreat. It backed away, huffing like a smithy's bellows and leaving a trail of blood. The companions stayed huddled at the top of the outcropping for several hours before they felt it was safe to climb back down and resume their travel, and they gave the Bear's Valley a wide berth when they did. More time would be lost but none of them were willing to go anywhere near that place again. Knights of Roleplay, an adventuring podcast, is an actual play, 5th edition, Dungeons & Dragons podcast. We offer a variety of content, including our actual play adventure episodes from our current campaign, as well as a rules primer and special episodes like one-shots and advice for players and dungeon masters. Whether you are a new player or a seasoned veteran, Knights of Roleplay offers something for anyone interested in Dungeons & Dragons. Please join us for our Spacefarers campaign, which is a mix of fantasy and science fiction. We hope our unique brand of humor and storytelling will provide you with hours of nerdy entertainment. Please visit us at knightsofroleplay.com. Incredibly, when I rolled for evasion earlier, I got a 6 on a d100. Fantastic good luck when all is said and done. That encounter, likely, would have ended in some serious bloodshed. A grizzly bear is, by the way, one tough customer. They have five hit dice and three attacks, including a special bear hug attack that can do 2 to 16 points of damage in addition to their regular attack damage. It's not hard to imagine one or more party deaths if they'd been forced to fight it, so I'm glad to see that they were able to avoid combat, and it only cost them six arrows and some time. Speaking of lost time, the party must now take a circuitous route, as they continue east while avoiding the valley. Between the encounter and finding a new path, they'll lose a full day. At the end of the day, they make a cold camp and post double watches. There are still three days to go before they can reach their final destination, and by morning, they'll have a new problem, as they'll have run out of food and water. 
None of the companions feel that it's worth facing the bear in hopes of getting either, by the way. It's not even up for debate. It's time to get the dice out again for Day 44. Weather. 18. Yet another perfect early summer day, although spirits are no longer high. Ursuleth in particular has changed. Her song is not heard on this day. The fight with the demi-shadows took place amongst a cacophony of sound and lightning flashes, and she was entirely spared having to face the ghouls. But the encounter with the grizzly was raw, real, and literally in her face. It has left her badly shaken. Stumble upon. A 19. So close. Will we ever see a positive result from this roll? Wandering encounter. A 2. The party proceeds unmolested through the day, though not without hardship. This is their first day in a little while, with nothing to eat or drink. Day 45. Weather. A 5. Unseasonably cold and damp, but maddeningly, it does not rain, and so their thirst worsens with every mile covered. Stumble upon. A 16. Nothing there. Wandering encounter. A 1. Again, they encounter nothing apart from rocks, occasional scrub grass, and the never-ceasing winds. Day 46. This will be their final day of travel if nothing hinders their progress. Weather. A 2. That's extremely bad weather, but does it rain? Mountain ranges block clouds. There's much less rainfall, but they did recently see a valley with vegetation, so some rain clouds must be getting through. I'll say there's a 50% chance for rain. High, low. High indicates rain. On a d20. A 1. Uh, definitely not. By afternoon, it is bitterly cold. The winds whip up, lashing them painfully and pushing them back as the weakened quintet battles for every yard. With such a bad roll, they are certainly delayed. Stumble upon. Not applicable. They cannot move in this weather. Wandering encounter. A 1. There is nothing but the howling wind, blowing and threatening to drive them all mad. Eventually, they find a boulder to shelter against, wrap themselves in their cloaks, and wait out the rest of the day and the night. Ursula spends most of the night sobbing, while Umura stays up, stroking her hair and feebly trying to reassure her. Gyrio spends the time in prayer, but now and then cannot help but ask Harl a second, third, or even a fourth time if he is sure they are headed in the right direction. Harl cannot be sure, but tries to push away his nagging doubt. Finally, when it's clear that they cannot even escape thirst through sleep, Umura pulls out the two small vials of holy water, and every one of them, Gyrios included, takes a merciful sip. Umura suggests that perhaps hope can come in many forms. Looks like I'll need to make rolls for day 45, too. Here we go. Weather. A 10. Mercifully, the wind dies down in the night, and the warmth of summer returns. Stumble upon. A 6. Nothing here. Wandering encounters. A four. Again, nothing. It seems that those winds were the final test of their determination and simple will to survive. Chapter 36, Part 2. Five days ago. Day 40. The new gods demanded faith and prayer, piety and asceticism, but the old gods were not so vain nor so needy. No, they had ceased to draw their power those ways long, long ago. Now, there was only one currency the old gods would accept. Sacrifice. Savs had been accepted. 
Not only a high priestess, but an entire order of the Blind Maiden's followers had been given to the King of Maggots. And Kedra had been pleased. It had rewarded him with new power. The power to bind the dead to his will. It had also given him a quest. Yes, the old god of entropy and decay had charged him with a sacred mission. Instructions had come to him in the form of images at first. Alien shapes and forms that his mind could not fully comprehend. Slowly, those images had blended together into a single writhing mass, completely filling his consciousness with maggots and worms for several euphoric moments until the words came to him. Portcullis gate had been left open, and so Sov had simply walked through it. He found himself in the Great Hall of Dwervar, under the nebulous glimmer of the enchanted ceiling. Somehow, he knew exactly where to go, and so he continued to walk, slowly, steadily. The Great Hall was not empty, but neither did it seem truly occupied. Sov could sense something, moving shapes glimpsed at the edges of his vision, retreating like fog behind the mighty columns as he passed them on the way to the opposite side. Eventually he reached the second set of mighty iron double doors. They had been left open too. An iron tankard lay on its side between them. Sov strode through the doors and entered the throne room. A shallow flight of steps washed in something dark rose up before him. A severed head leaned against one of the steps, face canted to one side as though lost in contemplation. It was black and withered like an old apple. At the top of the stairs was a marble throne flanked by a pair of iron statues, dwarves in full battle attire. They seemed to stare at him from behind their visored great helms with menace. Behind the throne, made of the same marble, a great disc featuring a grinning skull. At first the throne seemed unoccupied, but Asav ascended step by step, a figure resolved in the dim light, a shadow where there should have been none. If Sov had stepped to either side, the shape might have disappeared from view. The cleric of Nthkadra knew, without a doubt, that he had found what he had come looking for. Barak's voice was drawn and low, as though talking cost him great effort. Halt where you stand, fish eater, and tell me who are you who keep such strange company? The zombies behind Sav moaned softly as if they understood. There were more of them now. On the way to the High Forge, Sav and his servants had encountered a band of six hobgoblins. Mistaking the undead for wounded, the hobgoblins had immediately attacked. 
but they were no match for the dark cleric. A wave of his hand froze three of them in place before they could even engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The other three were put down in seconds, one falling to Sov's smooth-headed mace and the others to his undead slaves. The other three had been dispatched forthwith, and the whole encounter was over in under a minute. Sov had raised two of them to serve him. They stood with him now, as the ghostly shades of Dwervar moved to surround them. Part 3. Day 46. Afternoon. Party status. The party status is unchanged, except that they are now suffering from the effects of extreme thirst, now on their third day without water, and they are beginning to starve as well. All rolls will be made at a minus two penalty. Weak beyond belief, starving, thirsty, but never breaking stride longer than necessary to lift up a companion who had fallen, they staggered on, sometimes crawling over granite slabs and even tumbling down inclines of loose rock and gravel. Their hands were cut and calloused. Their arms and legs were covered in bruises. They felt sluggish and their thoughts were vague, all except for one, that they would not last another day before thirst took them. Eridine had noticed a pair of vultures following them, wheeling ominously in the sky. Perhaps more than any of them, Harl suffered. Beyond the physical, he endured a deep emotional hardship. Ultimately, he felt responsible for each and every one of them, Ursulith most of all. At the end of the day, the party laid down on the rocks without even bothering to set up camp. Honestly, there was nothing to set up, and even if there was, nobody would have had the energy. Umora had been watching Harl all day as he calculated and recalculated their route through the mountains. You know, she said. Her tongue felt thick in her mouth. Gyrios is not the only one of us with faith. Hmm? Harl had once again been lost in thought. I have faith too. In us. In you, Harl. The dwarf was silent for a moment before replying. It's, it's just, I feel the weight of responsibility. I should have known the way better. I've made mistakes, I fear. You haven't made any mistakes. The bear was not your fault. <laughs> Harl grunted, unconvinced. And it was you, Harl, who led us to safety. Try to get some sleep, all right? <laughs> Harl grunted again as Umura laid down. He looked up at the stars. After a time, he smiled wistfully and muttered, Morgan Sheen. Solen tough, Taguar. What's that? Umura's voice in the darkness. Oh, I beg your pardon, Umura, whispered Harl. I thought everyone was sleeping. I can't sleep, replied Umura. What was that you just said? Something about one person on a mountain? Your dwarfish is coming along very well indeed. As I have said before, we'll make a dwarf of you yet. Harl smiled into the dark. Thank you, Harl. That's kind of you to say. But what does that mean? One person on a mountain? It's an old dwarvish expression my childhood friend Nitram used to say. Morgan Sheen, Solon Taleftaguar. There's only room for one on the mountaintop. Ah, replied Umura. Once again, Harl stared up into the night sky. He thought about how close they had come to being caught by the grizzly. You know, he said softly, I think he was wrong about that. In the morning, Gyrios did not wake for his prayers. In fact, 
none of them woke with the dawn. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you have enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, the best way to help is to leave a rating or review on whichever podcatcher you use. I'd like to read one of these great reviews right now, and I think this might be the last one for a while because, well, I've almost run out. If you haven't left a review but you've thought about leaving one, please do. Live Life for God writes, Wow, I'm not going to lie. I was thinking about doing a video podcast but ended up journaling my solo campaign. Actually, I was recommended this podcast from a solo Facebook group I joined. Regardless, I was almost going to ask if you would be opposed to someone else copying your method of podcasting. That episode 30 came on. Clearly, you don't mind. It was refreshing to hear about Backstage. Highly suggest for anyone to listen to this podcast. Live life? You are right. I don't mind at all. Actually, I'm extremely excited to see and hear what others are doing with this mode of procedural storytelling. If anyone listening is thinking about jumping in with this hybrid format, do it. There is a lot of space here for people to get creative and tell stories by throwing away traditional structures. Thank you for the review, Live Life. I really appreciate it. I'm also very grateful to the people who lend their voices to the show. Returning to the story, as young Nitrum got, is Sid, my amigo in Arizona. Playing Barak Ironskin, the inimitable Austin Moraga of the Ironbound Chest. And finally, playing Enth Kadra, god of death and decay, is Trevor Duvall of the Me, Myself, and Die YouTube series. We'll be hearing from Trevor in an entirely different role again soon, too. If by some chance you have not yet seen his series, well, all I can say is that you are in for a huge treat. Be prepared to have a new favorite YouTube show, because Trevor sets the bar distressingly, but also marvelously high. If you hang out on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Tales of the Manticore Podcast, or on Twitter using the handle at Manticore Tale. You can also contact me by email. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Reach out. I love hearing from listeners. The adventure will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. Are you a D&D player looking for some character creation inspiration? Or a DM in desperate search of ideas for great NPCs? Are you a woman or non-binary person of any sexuality, race, and everything in between who wants to hear or share their stories from the game table? Then you will want to check out the Role for Equality podcast. We're an LGBTQ plus and non-binary led show that uses history for character inspiration by telling stories about badass historical people and how to make them into a PC or NPC for your campaigns with class, race, and background suggestions. We also do interviews and discussions about our experiences as women at the game table, social issues, and advice to help give a platform to women and non-binary players of every variety. We even do a few actual play campaign episodes. There are plenty of laughs, drinks, hijinks, and more here at Roll for Equality, and we would love for you, however you identify, to come and join in the fun and camaraderie as we talk about our favorite hobby, the Roll for Equality podcast. Give us a listen on major podcast platforms, and happy adventuring.